0: And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. This morning we will be hearing God's Word from Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. But before we hear God's Word to us this morning, let us call upon our God once again in prayer. Gracious and merciful Father, we do ask now that as we seek to approach you, That you would welcome us into your presence, that as you speak your word to us, that your spirit would work within us to apply this word and to draw us ever closer to you. For Lord, we desire to live near to you. For your nearness, your presence is our greatest good. So would you help us now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh... And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Because our God is spirit, because you therefore cannot physically see or hear or touch Him, it can be easy to feel like God is distant, that He is far away. And this perception of of distance is perhaps one of the most common laments I hear from Christians as a pastor. Saying, Pastor, God feels far. For the Christian faith proclaims that God is everywhere, and yet sometimes the Christian experience is that He feels as if He's nowhere to be found. This feeling can especially be exacerbated when we suffer, and yet even in everyday circumstances, God can feel distant. And yet, the Bible teaches us that God is not actually distant. God created and then He drew near to His creation. He formed the man and the woman and then He condescended to them by entering into a covenant relationship with them. He even made the Garden of Eden in which God and man could dwell together. True, the man and the woman broke this covenant, but... The rest of the story is how God graciously entered into another covenant with his people. A covenant in which, which was revealed and accomplished over time through multiple administrations and whose goal was to once again bring God and man near to one another. The wonderful message that we've been hearing throughout this letter to the Hebrews is that we live in the final and full administration of this covenant of grace through which we may dwell with our God. For we live in the days of the new covenant that has been inaugurated by, mediated through and secured in Jesus Christ who is our great priest and our sufficient sacrifice. Therefore, the Christian life is meant to be lived in nearness to God, for it is not space that separates you from God. God's distance is not a spatial problem, it is a sin problem, for only sin can separate you from God. But the good news of the gospel, which we have been hearing repeatedly in Hebrews, is that Jesus Christ came into the world to take away sin and thereby remove the distance. So if you are a Christian, God is not distant. All you have to do is draw near. But how do you live near to God? That's the question I will address this morning. And my answer, which I believe is the answer of this text, is that the Christian lives near to God through faith, through hope, and through love. So as you sit in your pew this morning, do you feel that God is distant? Do you feel like He doesn't see you or hear you when you pray? Do you feel like He does not care about you? Are you afraid to come to God because of a sense of your sin? Well, Then I want you to listen carefully for God is speaking to you this morning through the author of Hebrews. And I believe that more often than not the the feeling of distance from God is not actually that God has withdrawn. Simply that we have failed to draw near. So how does God's Word help you draw near this morning. Well, first, it helps you by reminding you once again that there is no longer any separation from God for those who are in Christ. Sin, not space, separates you from God. But the whole argument that we have been hearing from chapter 8 verse 1 through chapter 10 verse 18 is that Jesus is not only the superior high priest who brings you near to God, He is the superior sacrifice for sin that makes it possible for Him to bring you near to God. The sacrifice of the new covenant is so far high and above all the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant, that it has taken away sin once for all. And that superior and sufficient sacrifice is the very blood of Jesus Christ. So we heard back in chapter 9, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And again, we heard in chapter 10, verse 10, that by the will of God in Christ, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How much more? Once for all. These phrases are meant to echo in your soul. And because of this sacrifice, the new covenant promises have been secured, including the promise where God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You need to understand that Christ's sacrifice is enough. It has taken away sin. It has purchased forgiveness. And we know it is effective to forgive because it never needs to be repeated. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's where the author ended in verse 18. And it is this reality that grounds what he is going to say next. So he writes in verse 19, therefore, brothers, meaning in light of everything that I have been saying to you. This is further evident by the fact he summarizes the argument from the previous three chapters. Again, he's going to have three commands, but these commands are based on the fact that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, all of that is just a succinct summary of chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18. His commands, therefore, flow from the fact that Jesus, by His blood, through His flesh, both referring to His sacrificial death on the cross, has opened the way into God's presence. In the old covenant, to enter into the Holy of Holies which signified God's presence, you had to pass through the curtain. But in the new covenant... You enter into God's presence only through Jesus Christ. He is the only way to God. And this way, we are told, is new because it was not present until Christ came. And it is new because it has inaugurated the new covenant. But this way is also living because it is the way that leads to eternal life. And because the way itself is alive. You don't enter through an inanimate curtain, you enter through the living, breathing person of Christ who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the living door into eternal life. And so because of Jesus, you may have confidence to enter. The word can also mean authorization. You've been in buildings before where there are certain doors that say for authorized personnel only. If you don't have authorization and you want to go through that door, you're going to do it fearfully. You're going to have to try and sneak in because if anyone sees you go through that door, they're going to kick you right back out. But if you're authorized, you can walk through confidently. Doesn't matter who sees you walk through the door, you are authorized personnel. In Christ, you are authorized to walk through the door into God's holy presence. You have the right of free access to God. There is no more separation because your sins are no more. And Jesus, we are told, is the great priest over God's house and He continues to live and reign interceding for His people at God's right hand. So in light of... All of this, what are you supposed to do? Well, the author gives you three commands, which are each indicated by, let us. You hear that three times. These These commands can be categorized according to the three chief Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. So what's the first thing you're commanded to do in light of what Jesus has done for you? Well, the first command is to draw near to God by faith. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the author exhorts us in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This command is an obvious application of Christ's sacrifice. If you believe in the blood, you get to walk through the door. He's authorized you to enter, so enter. And don't enter timidly. He says, you have confidence, so enter boldly. You should feel confident to draw near to God. One of my favorite hymns is the hymn that we just sang, And Can It Be. Listen, listen again to that final verse. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. You don't walk through the door with fear. You walk through boldly. For the stain and guilt of sin have been taken away. And you have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. With the full assurance of faith. For you are clean. You are clean. Pure, you are righteous, you are perfected in Christ. So the Father will no more throw you out of His presence than He would throw Jesus Christ out of His presence. And yet, you must draw near. So let me speak for a moment to any of you here who have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not a fool to assume that everyone who walks through a door into a church on a Sunday morning actually has placed their faith in Christ. So let me assure you that the only thing keeping you on this side of the door is your own unbelief. God is not the one that is keeping you from himself. It's you that keeps you from God. If you would but turn in faith in Jesus and walk through the door, I can promise you he will gladly receive you. All you must do is believe with a true heart. That doesn't mean a a heart devoid of sin, it means a heart that is looking to God and no other. You cannot come to God with one foot on either side of the door. You cannot come to God if you are also looking for something else to supply your joy, peace, and salvation. And so I ask you, what is holding you back? Why won't you come? Jesus has made the way. Jesus is the way. The door is wide open. Walk through. Hear Again, the call of Jesus. Maybe you've been in a church all of your life and you just still won't believe. Well, as you hear Christ's call again, believe. For He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy, And my burden is light. But Christian, those of you who have entered by faith, you must keep walking through that door by faith every day. See, the command is not to draw near once. It is to keep drawing near. You can translate it, let us continue to draw near. See, faith is not just a decision. It is a destination. It's not where you go once. It's where you remain. Faith is a lifestyle. Our our culture loves to talk about lifestyles, especially alternative lifestyles. There's only one alternative lifestyle in this world, and that is the lifestyle of faith. Christianity is the only religion that is not actually of this world. It is completely other. It is of a heavenly world. So Christian, I ask you again, does God feel distant because you stopped drawing near? Have you grown weary of drawing near as you seek Him in His Word because you just don't understand much of it or if you're honest, it bores you to read the Bible? Have you grown weary of drawing near through prayer because you just feel like Your words are just going up into the sky and nobody's there to answer. Have you grown weary of drawing near through corporate worship because it just doesn't give you the emotional high that you're looking for? Do not grow weary of drawing near to God through the means that He has given you to draw near. Believe and keep believing. As John Piper once said, God is as distant as the holy of holies in heaven and yet as near as the door of faith. Jesus died to bring you near to God. Peter says that. That was His purpose. He gave His life so you could live close to Him and His Father where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So draw near by faith. Believing is living living near to God. The second command is found in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Because of what Jesus has done, you are to draw near by faith, and then you are to hold fast in hope. The confession of our hope is Jesus Christ as our great priest and sacrifice. It's all that the author has been expounding in this letter. We have been given this hope, but our job is to hold on to what we have been given. We don't cast it away like a piece of trash. The image of of holding fast that always comes to my mind is, is what happens every time I try to leave my house to go to work. One of the hardest things that I do in life is try to walk out my door every morning. Not because it's so emotionally distressing, though I I am sad to, to leave my wife and kids. But as soon as I call out, bye everyone, I'm leaving, my kids sprint. Talitha goes for the neck, so she wraps me around the neck. The other kids go for the feet. And they say, You're not going anywhere because they are clinging so tightly. And I always think, That's how I'm supposed to hold on to my Heavenly Father. Every morning I cling to Him, say, You're not going anywhere. The good news is, He doesn't want to go anywhere, He wants you. To cling to Him without wavering. Which is just another way to say in full assurance of faith. We're not only commanded to draw near to God. We are commanded to hold fast. For again, the confession of our hope is hope in God. So... Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's not an uncertain desire. Like when I hope every year that Michigan State will actually win a national championship. And they never do. That's not the kind of hope that we have in Christ. It is as sure as God Himself. So notice why we hold fast without wavering. It is because He who promised is faithful. doesn't say anything about you. It's, It's about God. And this is so important because even though our hope never wavers, our feeling of hope wavers when we are looking for stability in the wrong place. Your sense of hope will waver when you look for stability in yourself, in others, or in your circumstances. Because let's face it, you and I are not always faithful. The same is true for the most trustworthy person you know. And furthermore, your circumstances are always subject to change. You live in an ever-changing world. You will hold fast in hope, therefore, only when you begin looking to the unchanging, unwavering God. We hold fast without wavering because He who promised is faithful. Not because we're faithful. Not because our loved ones are faithful. Not because our world is stable. So I've often encouraged you, because the Bible encourages you, to cling to the promises of God. That's good. Remember what we read back in chapter 6. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He gave us the promise and the oath to help us hold fast to the hope set before us. We are to trust in the unchangeable character of His purpose. But notice that the strength for holding fast is not ultimately found in the content of the promise. It is in the character of the promiser. In other words... The character of God's purpose is unchangeable because the character of God's person is unchangeable. We therefore hope in the promise because we hope in the God who gave the promise. His character guarantees the content. So as you read your Bible, sometimes probably feel, I I read my Bible, I don't actually know what I'm supposed to be looking for when I read my Bible. Well, one of the things you should always keep an eye open to is the character of God that is being revealed. For you will cling to the promises of God only as you trust more and more in the character of God. Your hope in what God says is ultimately your hope in who God is and who is he. Well, one of the most common descriptions of God is that He is faithful. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. Therefore, when your grip begins to loosen, you need to preach to yourself the character of God. Tell your heart again that your God is the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When you begin to waver, you say to your heart again, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And when your heart is downcast, exhort your heart again, hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You live near to God as you hold fast to the confession of your hope. And your hope in the promise of God is ultimately hope in the God who promises. For He who promised is faithful. So living near to God is drawing near by faith. It is holding fast in hope. Third and finally, it is also abiding in love. The third command comes in verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now let me show you why I call this abiding in love. First, I call this abiding in love because the command is to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So you're encouraging one another to, to love God and to love each other. But in this way, you're actually Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. So considering how to stir up others to love is one of the ways that you love. I say this because of the word consider. It's the same word we heard back in chapter 3 which said consider Jesus. Which I explained, you set your thought, you set your affections, you set everything upon Him. Well now we're, we're told this This careful thought and affection yes you set on christ but you now set also on one another you really think about each other you know each other so you can stir one another up this is also one way therefore that you are abiding yourself in god's love as you obey this command in hebrews 10 For Jesus commands in John 15, abide in me and I in you. And then he explains, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You may be thinking there, well, how do I abide in your love, Jesus? Well, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And you think, okay, great. Well, what's your commandment, Jesus? He tells you, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So as you obey the command to love one another, you abide in God's love for you. Which means you cannot abide in Christ's love. You cannot live near to God if you do not love his people. You cannot abide in Christ's love if you do not love his church. The church is not optional. After all, he is the head, the church is the body. I don't know about you, but I've never heard someone say to another person, Oh, I love your head. Don't love anything else, but your head, it's a really nice head. We are also told that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And I don't know how you can love a husband if you hate his wife. He's not interested if you don't love his wife. And so I believe it is biblical to say that you cannot live near to God if you are intentionally living far from the church. It's not possible. To put it another way, when you remain distant from God's people, you will remain distant from God. Drawing and living near to God is a corporate reality as much as it is an individual reality. So neglecting corporate worship and Christian community is the exact opposite of drawing near and holding fast to God. For how can you love those who you are never with? And this is why the author of Hebrews even specifies that we are... Not to be neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You notice there. It doesn't tell you why some are neglecting to meet together. It doesn't matter why. There is absolutely no good reason to neglect meeting with God's people. There's not one. To do so is to disobey a direct command from God. This includes corporate worship, but it goes beyond corporate worship. For remember, in chapter 3, the author said, exhort one another every day. So, commit to corporate worship, but also exercise hospitality. Join a fellowship group or a Bible study. Have prayer partners. You must live life together if you are to live near to God. And you do so not only with an eye at your own salvation, your own needs, your own well-being. You do so with an eye to the salvation needs and well-being of others around you. Remember, the command is to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another. In other words, when you come to church, when you have people over to your house, when you attend a fellowship group or a Bible study, you are not going primarily thinking about how others can serve and encourage you. You are to go thinking, how can I serve and encourage others? For Jesus himself said that he came to earth not to be served, but to serve. And so you will live near to God when you are living like God. You will feel more of the love of God when you are freely extending the love of God. And let me especially note here the command to encourage one another. Do you see that in verse 25? We are encouraging one another. Now I've emphasized in the past that we are to exhort one another as it says in chapter 3. We are to help guard one another from the deceitfulness of sin that will create an unbelieving heart. So we do have to speak hard convicting words to each other. That's one of the ways we love each other. But we must also be seeking to build each other up in grace. What I mean is that you ought to strive to help others see the grace of Jesus that is in them as much as you are seeking to expose sin that they might put it to death. And this ultimately means you need to help others see that Christ dwells within them. To see that they are sanctified and being sanctified. That they are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That they are full of Christ's Spirit. It can be so hard for us to see that ourselves when we are just so aware of the sin that plagues us every day. And we need each other to build each other up and to say, I know it's hard for you to see, but I see it. You do have Christ. Help one another see the fruit of faith. For when we stir up one another to love and good works, we are helping reveal the grace of Jesus that is in each other. For our love and good works are only possible if Christ is in us, working by His Holy Spirit. So do not merely look for sin in one another. Look for grace in one another. Be a Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Pray that God would make you a son or daughter of encouragement. To be the kind of person that when others interact with you, they always walk away just feeling strengthened and full of hope. See, I'm, I'm convinced that churches do not most often fail and fall apart and fracture and split when gross heresy makes it into the church or even when there's a a great fall from the pastor. Those things can break up churches. I believe more often than not, churches fall apart because brotherly love just dwindles and dies and they become sheep, as Paul says, who bite and devour one another. I pray that would never be true of good shepherds. So I ask you, are you only seeing and pointing out the indwelling sin in one another? Or are you also seeing and pointing out the indwelling spirit of Christ in one another? Do you look at others as God looks at them in Christ? Remember I've said God the Father looks on Christians and what he sees is Jesus. Because they've been united to Jesus. Do you look at one another and see Jesus? You should when you are looking at another believer. Do you see Christ in your Christian family? To deny the grace of Christ in one another is ultimately to deny Christ. It's to say the gospel doesn't actually change people, it doesn't make anybody new. So come to church and live in fellowship, seeking ways to encourage one another. On Sundays, don't just seek out the same people that you talk to every week. Find those who are alone. Go up, say hello. Ask real questions of one another so you know how to pray and support one another. When someone does something well, tell them they did it well. Don't sneak in late. And sneak out early. Really interact with one another. But of course to do any of this. Means you actually have to meet with one another. This is a command that can only be obeyed. In the context of community. If you are not living in community. It is impossible for you to obey this command. The church is a gift to you. And as part of the church, you are a gift to one another. So don't waste the gift. This is where faith, hope, and love dwell because the church is where the Spirit of Christ dwells. So if you desire to live near to God, live near to one another. For fellowship with God is fellowship with one another, and fellowship with one another is fellowship with God. And so I close with these words from the Apostle John, who said, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for what Christ has done for us. He has made a way back into your presence and so we can have confidence to come. So I pray that each of us this morning would draw near by faith, that we would continue to draw near by faith, that we would hold fast in hope and that we would abide in love, considering one another and how to stir up one another to good works and love, encouraging each other. I thank you for the gift of this church. and I pray that we would not waste what you have given us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.